Well, I want to spend some time on why do we celebrate communion? Some churches practice this weekly, some monthly, some less. But what does it mean? And why do we do it aside from the fact that Jesus told us to? So I actually want to walk through something that I shared about six years ago, and it is, listen, an insane amount of ancient history and cultural context. And so I'm going to absolutely nerd out here for just a little bit, if you will indulge me. Um, in many ways, I'm sharing like a central unifying theme that brings like the whole Bible together. And I guess a disclosure, you will get out of this pretty much in direct proportion to the degree that you stick with me and like, where is this going? What's he doing? This is, in, this is nuts. Um, if, to the degree you stick with me till the very end. And here's what I know about you. You all watch Christopher Nolan movies, even though you have no clue what's happening, uh, to the very end, trusting there'll be some kind of payoff. So I hope that's the case uh, today. That said, if you get lost at any point, please don't give up. Okay, just hang in there and uh, keep hanging on, and hopefully it'll come together. And I promise I won't do something like this for my, next week for my last sermon. But this truly is one of the most important things I can think to, to leave you all with. So there's one really big idea that we need to explore, and it's the idea of covenant, which is actually woven all throughout Scripture. And this has some really profound implications for how we view our faith and uh, our relationship with God. Now, covenant, that to me sounds like a pretty churchy word, doesn't it? Sounds pretty religious. Um, you've probably heard this word before. Maybe you even have some idea what a biblical covenant is. But just know you're not alone if you would be hard-pressed uh, to like, explain it to someone else or to get at like, why it, it really matters. Bit of Bible trivia. The Bible, as you know, is divided into two testaments, Old Testament New Testament. Well, that word testament comes from the Greek and, and Hebrew word for covenant. So you could literally call your Bible the old covenant and the new covenant and be saying like the same exact thing. So right away, if you take a step back, whatever it means fully, covenant is actually literally framing the entire Bible. Now, for us to begin to get our minds around what this is, uh, we have to first understand that the word covenant was actually not a religious word in its original context. It was a completely secular concept in its meanings and associations. So originally, covenant didn't have anything at all to do with God, Scripture, um, religion, or anything like that. And so my goal this morning is to show you where this comes from historically and then how we got to what we think of. And in so doing, I hope you can understand the Bible and especially God in a, in a deeper way. I'm indebted to the scholarship of Dr. Sandy Richter for much of this. She formally taught Old Testament at Asbury Seminary where I did my master's. Uh, Dr. Richter got her PhD from Harvard in Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations. Um, she's an expert in the Old Testament, Hebrew culture, and obscure ancient languages like Akkadian. So pretty much what every kid wants to be when they grow up. 
Dr. Richter, drawing from broad scholarship, says an ancient covenant was simply, here's a definition, an agreement enacted between two parties in which one or both make promises under oath to perform or refrain from certain actions stipulated in advance. Two parties, we're going to do this, we're going to not do this, we agree ahead of time. You can see from that definition, there's really nothing religious about that. In the ancient Near Eastern world, covenants were, were a part of, of pretty much every culture used these things. So it's not at all just a Jewish thing, and it's certainly not originally a religious thing. Back then, these covenant agreements between two parties could be made between individuals, between two or more tribes, or between two or more nations. And we're going to focus on that last one, international covenants. But all of this applies to covenants in each one of the scenarios. So that's what it is. Why did the need for a covenant even come about? What was the framework? What was the mindset in that world that made covenants a really necessary, common part of daily life? Well, most ancient Near Eastern cultures, peoples, we've talked about this before, were highly familial. Also patriarchal. Households back then were much larger. You often had multiple generations living under the same word again, roof. <laughs> I think that's it. Uh, but in a patriarchal, in a familial culture like this, family, blood was everything. If someone was related to you by blood, you were bound to that person for life. For them, identity wasn't so much who you are as an individual, which is how we kind of think of it. No, your primary source of identity was your family, your last name, your heritage. And so being associated with a family or a bloodline, that meant by definition you had all the privileges that went with that family and all the responsibilities implied. So let's say someone in this, in this ancient familial world you wanted to go about establishing that same level of commitment, that same depth, that same bond with someone who wasn't your family. How would you do that? Like what if someone on an individual level or tribal level or even national level, um, you needed someone else to act like a family member and you were willing to give them the, the privileges associated in return? Well, this led to something, a development called fictive kinship. In other words, a covenant was really a, a type of legal fiction that bonded two parties together. That's pretty much it. Both parties agreed. Even though we are not connected by blood, we agree we're going to act like family. The closest thing that we have to this in the 21st century would be marriage or like adoption by entering into a marriage covenant, it, you can see the mechanism, this fictive kinship. We're saying in marriage, we are now blood. Or by adopting someone, again, it's a, first, it's a legal device that says we are now family. And so the fictive kinship of adoption is I am legally binding myself to care for this other person as if they were my own flesh and blood. So again, focusing on these ancient, we're going to do international covenants, covenant making between two or more nations, 
Uh, let me try to illustrate what this looked like. This board game may look familiar um, to some of you. It's risk. Um, so the ancient Near East was crammed full of dozens and dozens of these petty little kingdoms and, and, and kings. And there was lots of different people groups packed in here. Not much inhabitable space. Even fewer resources. Well, in Israel's day, there were two major superpowers. There was Egypt to the south, and then there was Mesopotamia. Egypt was pretty constant. Mesopotamia was the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, and so on. Um, And you can see these guys took up a lot of real estate. And look who is right smack in the middle. Israel, formerly known as Canaan. Um, in this narrow strip of land. And, and there were all kinds, again, little, little kingdoms and chiefs and kings. In fact, there's some of them, Israelites, Judahites, Philistines, Phoenicians, Aramaeans, Ammonites, Moabites, Edomites, all these people represented by that, 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 and that. Um, in fact, historically, we don't even know where one group ends and another begins because it's just all over the place. So, If you're one of the superpowers on either side of this narrow strip of land, um, can you see the political appeal of wanting that? It's important for military reasons, and it's important for trade, for travel. And so because of that, these these big guys often fought for control of this region. And so Canaan was a land of frequent conflict, and it still is to this day. So if you're living in Canaan in ancient times, you have one of two choices to survive. First choice is this. You can unite together with all of the other smaller kings and tribes and kingdoms in order to essentially defend yourself from attacks from these larger invading empires. This is called a parity covenant. Parity simply meaning a covenant between equals. And so in a parity covenant, any attempt by an enemy to come in and invade your area would be met with an all-for-one, one-for-all sort of approach. They would all get together and fight back. If an outlying tribe got attacked, all would rally to defend. If a superpower was trying to move through, all came uh, to ally, to resist. In a parity covenant, the covenant partners spoke of each other as brothers, which goes back to that idea of fictive kinship, this metaphor of family. In spite of our religious, social, political differences, we're going to come together on this and we're going to treat each other like brothers. So that's option number one. But it's still, you can see, it's kind of just the little guys trying to fight off all the big guys. And so the odds are not in your favor if you're in here. Option two for survival was you could go to one of these superpowers and you could subjugate yourself to them in exchange for protection. Protection from another superpower or any other invader. This is what ancient literature calls a suzerain vassal covenant. And that's the last of our new vocab words, okay? But it's very, very important. Um, This is not equal. This is a covenant between greater and lesser powers. And so as the little guy, you could go to one of these neighboring empires and you could try your best to negotiate favorable covenant alliance terms. But you know what happened more often? The big guys came to you 
and they invited you to consider this arrangement. And by invite, I mean they forced you to. Um, in order to, you know, secure travel, trade, military defense, or whatever. So in a suzerain vassal covenant, one party, and you can see, is very clearly more powerful than the other. And so what that means is they could demand that you submit as the weaker, quote, ally. These partners refer to each other not as brothers, more like father and son, or actually more like lord and servant. So in this arrangement, the suzerain had authority over all the vassal's land and, and people. Typically, the suzerain let the vassal king, like the puppet king, essentially, have their own land and do your little king stuff and have your traditions and all that, and we'll leave you alone. But don't forget for a second, the suzerain, suzerain would say, I own everything the vassal produces. I might gift you with something, but I own it all. So this is all, you can see, very Game of Thrones-ish, um, minus the dragons. The suzerain promised military protection for the vassal. If anyone attacked you, I'm going to step in. In exchange, the vassal had to pay the suzerain tribute, like a pretty high percentage of their GMP back. Um, the vassal also owed the suzerain lord military assistance. Whenever the suzerain said the vassal had to field an army to like go fight the suzerain's wars, if the suzerain's army came through the vassal's territory, for whatever reason, the vassal had to give to the military you know, open passage and food and supplies and housing and all that. Now, here's the most important part for both of these covenants. For both the parity covenant between equals and the suzerain uh, vassal covenant be greater than, less than. The most important thing was consummate loyalty. This is huge. This means that a vassal cannot go make another covenant with another suzerain or lord. So, let's say you're the gray guy, and you've joined up with the yellow guys, and you have, they're your suzerain. You're the vassal. You cannot sneak around down here and do a side deal and ask the blue guys, will you also become our suzerain? That is a big no-no. Um, in fact, it's, it would be considered treason in this culture. Even if you're in a parody covenant, so you've got your little band of brothers and we're going to fight off all the bad guys, even in that, you cannot go do a side deal, uh, any other kind of covenant outside the one you've established. In the Bible, the term for this sort of loyalty is the, the word hesed, and it shows up so much in the Old Testament. There's all kinds of words to translate it, love, loving kindness, mercy, faithfulness. But the best translation of this word is simply covenant faithfulness. This is the kind of loyalty that comes from blood. This is the kind of loyalty like a firstborn son owes the father. And so if a vassal dared to make another covenant with another suzerain, uh, he committed treason and, and would pay. So we know a little bit about what a covenant is and the purpose for when you need somebody to act like family and not break their word. Now, how did you go about forming a covenant? You find these examples all over the place in ancient literature outside of the Bible. The Egyptians practiced this, the Assyrians before them, before them, the, the Hittites. And so making a covenant involved two very important things. First, 
both parties made oaths to each other. These oaths, what each side was committing to, very specifically, would then be ratified, it would be authorized by the agreed upon sacrifice. In the Hebrew Bible, the word for covenant is the word berit. And because covenant making always involved killing a sacrificial animal, idiomatically, berit is literally to cut a covenant. Now, this sacrifice did two things. Number one, it sealed the covenant in a ceremonial, fairly memorable fashion, right? But more importantly, it reminded the covenant makers of the severe consequences of breaking this covenant. There's a fun example from outside the Bible. Uh, the 8th century B.C. covenant between Asher Narari, the fifth of Assyria. He's the superpower. He's the Lord Master suzerain guy. And this underling, this vassal guy named Matailiu. So Asher Narari, he's talking about this slaughtered lamb, which is supposed to represent and, and ratify this covenant. So he's talking about a lamb. He says this, this head of the lamb is not the head of a spring lamb. It is the head of Matailiu, the vassal. It is the head of his sons, his magnates, and the people of his land. If Matailiu should sin against this treaty, so may, just as the head of the spring lamb is cut off, the head of Matailiu be cut off. Very subtle, right? Now, very, very important. The vassal, when the sacrifice was made, and you see this, again, Egyptian context. The vassal, the lesser power, the, 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 under, the underling, was required to walk between the bloodied parts of the slaughtered animal while he recited his oath to the suzerain. And so the vassal is essentially saying, may what has happened to this animal happen to me and my family forever if I fail to keep my oath. So as far as visual aids go, I would say that's probably pretty good, right? Fairly effective. That is an image you do not get out of your head in a weak moment when you're tempted to deflect on your end of the covenant. Now what's interesting is the suzerain does not, does not have to walk through the bloody path of the sacrificed animal because he has all the power. So do you, you see the power dynamic? Only the vassal, yes, sir, you have all the power. I won't, I won't disappoint you. I won't defect. Now, if the suzerain does defect, if he doesn't uphold his end of the deal, what can the vassal do about it? Nothing. They have no power. They're just trusting that this person will keep their word. That's it. Um, and there's lots of examples where you have a vassal going, help, suzerain, we're being attacked, and you said you'd protect us. And they're like, eh, we might get around to it later if we have time. But there wasn't a thing the vassal could do to enforce the, the, the contract, the agreement. There's a fascinating example of this in Joshua 9 and 10 where all of this plays out. I'm just going to paraphrase it briefly, but seriously, you should check it out sometime. Without understanding just a little bit about ancient covenants, what we're about to look at makes absolutely no sense to a modern reader. In Joshua 9, Joshua and the Israelites are moving into the promised land, Canaan. Remember that map with all these little chiefs and all these little kings and kingdoms? And they've conquered, Joshua and his army have conquered a few cities and are positioning themselves 
because of their success, to like conquer the whole land. Well, word about Joshua, this invader, is quickly spreading. And the Gibeonites who live in Canaan, in the land, they panic when they realize their little city-state lies directly in Joshua's path and that they're going to lose. So the Gibeonites decide to trick Joshua. Here's what they do. They go to him and they tell him that they live far, far away. And they say, we have come to you, Joshua, to be your vassal. We want you to be our suzerain. We'll give you everything we've got in exchange for if we ever need it. Hopefully it doesn't come to that, but protection. Because you would be our suzerain. Joshua fails to consult Yahweh about this. Not a good idea. Joshua agrees. And the text says, literally, they cut a berit. They cut a covenant together. They did all the things we've just talked about. Joshua is now their suzerain. Well, what the Gibeonites failed to tell Joshua was that they did not, in fact, live far, far away. Instead, they lived just a couple miles down the road or up the road, right smack in Joshua's warpath. Pretty smart move for the Gibeonites, right? It's going to be hard for Joshua then to go attack the very people five minutes ago he swore he would protect as their suzerain. Now, to make things even worse... Gibeon was already in a parody covenant with all the other, remember that map? All the other kings and chieftains of Canaan. They had all said, we will band together to defend ourselves together from any invader like Joshua. And so these other kings in the agreement, they hear that the Gibeonites have done a side deal, that they now have a protector, a suzerain in Joshua. And so they're upset because covenant loyalty is everything, and now they have to deal with the guy who broke their covenant. So the king of Gibeon finds out that all these Canaanite kings are marching to Gibeon to destroy them for breaking covenant. The king of Gibeon responds like any endangered vassal would respond and says, suzerain Joshua. He calls on Joshua to come to his help, to his aid. So the king of Gibeon calls Joshua and says, hey, remember that covenant we just made and you, where you swore to protect us just in case that ever came to that? Well, funny thing. The fascinating thing is even though Joshua realizes he's been tricked into making this oath, this covenant with Gibeon, Joshua doesn't say, well, you guys forget it. Deal's off. You're on your own. And again, no one is going to make Joshua uphold his end of the deal. He has the power. But Joshua knows that if he is going to be a good, faithful suzerain, he's going to have to honor the covenant he made, however foolishly he made it. And so Joshua comes to the aid of his vassal and defeats Gibeon's attackers. All right. Interesting ancient history lesson so far. But what does this have to do with God? Well, so far, nothing. That's my point. We're just talking local politics and power struggles and, and alliances, so nothing religious. But what would it look like then if God wanted to make a covenant arrangement with people? Well, that had never happened before. That, would you agree, we'd be talking like a whole new kind of international treaty agreement? Yeah. 
And why would God want to do something like that? So knowing what you now know, I'm hoping some things start to click, and here's a quiz question. If God were to make a covenant with people, would that be a parody covenant? You know, band of brothers, we're, we're all equal here. Or would that be more of a suzerain, vassal, you know, master, servant, greater than, less than? This one, this one over here, right? Yeah, we're talking like the God of the universe getting involved with people. Well, way back in Genesis, before any of this Joshua stuff, we actually find Yahweh, God, making a covenant with Abraham. That God had promised <clears throat> Abraham he would make him into a great nation, which involved descendants and people and land and a place to call home. But years go by, and Abraham and Sarah are still childless. They're wandering around Canaan, that narrow strip of land when it was called Canaan. Abraham struggling with his faith, and so he asked Yahweh, Oh, Lord God, how may I know <clears throat> that I will possess the land? And it's interesting, God doesn't say, because I told you, now stop questioning me. Instead, Yahweh answers in a way that he knows Abraham will understand. So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram, or Abraham, brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. Any guesses about what's about to happen here? See, without context, we read this and we go, this is so weird, like the, all, all the blood, bloodshed and the animals and all of that. Abraham knows exactly what's about to happen, as would any ancient person reading about this. Yahweh is inviting Abraham to confirm the oath, the promise between them, by essentially means of a standard covenant ratification ceremony. Question. Does God need to do this? Does, let me ask it this way. Does God need to be reassured of God's own faithfulness? So whose benefit is this for? It's for Abraham. Abraham is the one who needs some reassurance. God is very tenderly helping Abraham have confidence in the promise. That God will hold up his end of the bargain and give Abraham descendants and a place and a nation. The text goes on in verse 12. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. This is already a clue that something huge is about to happen because the last biblical character to fall into a deep sleep was Adam, right before Eve was formed from his side. This idea here of heaviness, of darkness, um, that is a Hebrew way of communicating God is about to show up in physical form. Yahweh is about to visit Abraham like himself somehow. Verse 17, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch, that somehow is the presence of Yahweh, appeared and passed between the pieces. So all the elements of covenant making are here. The covenant partners are present the ritual animals have been slain and laid on the ground. The stipulations of the covenant have been recited. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Literally cut a berit. Now, this is clearly a suzerain, vassal situation. God is powerful. God is much stronger. 
Abraham is the vassal. Did you happen to notice, though, who it was who passed between the torn and bloodied parts of the sacrificed animals? In other words, who by his actions announced, may what has happened to these animals happen to me if I fail to keep my oath? Not the weaker party. Not Abraham. Not the vassal. Instead, the Lord of the cosmos navigates the bloody path himself in order to announce to Abraham and his offspring that he would not fail. This is an unimaginable reversal. So God actually didn't create the idea of covenant. He co-opted it to help Abraham. I just think that's, I think it's stunning that God would be willing to meet Abraham's need for reassurance in such a tangible, personal, in this case, vulnerable way. That should get our attention. Well, you fast forward to Moses and, and Mount Sinai, and this is hundreds of years after this little covenant thing happened with Abraham. Around 2500 BC, there was no force on earth more powerful than the Egyptians, the blue guys down here, if you remember. Um, they also happened to own a race of people who were the offspring of Abraham, the one Yahweh had made this covenant with. And so, of course, they're wondering, has God forgotten his promise? And so Exodus 2.24 says, God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God sent his people a deliverer, Moses. And God leads the Hebrew people out of slavery to a place in the desert called Mount Sinai. Now remember, they've been slaves for 400 years. Just imagine the effects of that on a group of people. Stripped of the opportunity to organize their own lives or society. Illiterate, abused, dominated. How would this mob of people ever become a nation? What laws would they govern themselves with? How would they structure their religion? What would be on their calendar? They, they don't have anything like this. How are they going to get together enough to enter into the promised land or Canaan? When you think about all the challenges of starting a nation from nothing, turns out getting out of Egypt was like the easy part in comparison. But of course, God had a plan. It was here at Mount Sinai that Yahweh, God, enacts another covenant, but it's really a continuation of the original covenant he made with Abraham. And it was by this covenant at Sinai that a mob of slaves was transformed into a people, into a nation. And the most amazing drama of redemption yet known in human history occurred. Exodus 19 says, God says, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, this agreement, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. How could this be accomplished? God, the suzerain of the universe, decides to make Israel a nation by making a covenant with him. I just want you to see they did not self-generate into a country out of nothing. It's only by means of their relationship with God as suzerain that Israel becomes a vassal nation under God's authority. 
He says, and you'll recognize this from the Ten Commandments, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. What's Yahweh's point? No other suzerains. Think about it. How would God communicate the concept of monotheism, which is brand new to them, coming out of Egypt for centuries? He would do it in the only terms they could understand, political terms. Just like a nation would never bind itself to more than one suzerain, Israel cannot bind herself to more than one God. Like any covenant, God gives them the terms of agreement, the Ten Commandments, the law. Um, In Exodus 24, it says, Moses recounted all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. There's the oath. So what are we missing? What's next? Sacrifice, right? To ratify it, to finalize it. A few verses later. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls, and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, the law, the Ten Commandments, and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. What an amazing moment. By oath and sacrifice, the children of Abraham become the nation of Israel. The God of the cosmos becomes their sovereign Lord. And this mob of slaves is transformed into a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, in the generations to follow, which party in this covenant failed to uphold the terms? God or the Israelites? Again and again, it's like the whole Old Testament. They, the Israelites kept breaking the covenant, worshiping idols or other gods, um, dis, disregarding God's commandments. They forgot about their suzerain, God, who actually fulfilled his promise, who did deliver them and make them into a people and give them an identity and give them a home. The descendants of Moses certainly did not do everything the Lord had commanded, as they, by the way, had sworn in blood to do. If a vassal broke covenant with the suzerain, who was supposed to pay for that? The vassal, right? Except in this case, remember the original covenant God made with Abraham? Remember that moment where shockingly it was God, it was Yahweh, who passed through the parts of the bloodied sacrifice. It was God who said, may what's happened to this animal happen to me if I ever, ever break covenant. Well, God upheld his end. Israel didn't. But once this covenant with God was broken, it immediately raises a very important question. Who's gonna pay? Because it was very unconventional for the Lord to do that. Whose flesh is gonna be torn to pay the price for the broken covenant. The scene is in Jerusalem 
the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry, the last night of his freedom. And it's the Passover, and Jesus is there with his 12 closest followers, and they're celebrating this really sacred, important meal, uh, Passover, going back to when they got out of Egypt. Matthew 26, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, Luke adds, new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Can you hear the echoes of Exodus 24? Moses said, this is the blood of the covenant. Jesus said, this is my blood of the new covenant. That echo is not coincidental. Everyone there, everyone reading about this um, knows what this is saying. Jesus was announcing, essentially, he was announcing to his disciples that something greater than the Exodus was about to transpire. Something greater than the covenant God made with the Israelites at Sinai. By means of oath and sacrifice, another group of slaves was about to be transformed by God into God's covenant people. Only this time, it wasn't just for the Israelites. This time it was for everyone. This time it was for the whole world. Ephesians 2 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Just like Moses sprinkled blood of bulls on people in order to ratify the Sinai covenant, so Jesus distributed his own blood that night to seal a new covenant. And this time... The slaves who were freed from their bondage by this new covenant weren't delivered from Egypt. They were delivered from death itself. That's why Hebrews 9 says, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. The God of the universe in this covenant serves as both suzerain and sacrifice. This brings us to communion, and I can't even... I feel in, totally inadequate to explain the implications of this, but for starters, notice that God is saying, I'm not just making you my servants. This is not your typical Lord, Master, suzerain, vassal deal. I'm not interested in that. Romans 8 says, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. This idea of fictive kinship, making someone who wasn't your flesh and blood into family through covenant. That's what God has done for us in Jesus. That's the reality he's pronounced on our behalf. We are sons and daughters of the living God. Hebrews 2 says, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. 
So Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. So are we sons and daughters or are we brothers and sisters? Yes. I mean, now our whole system, he just comes in and blows it all up and it, it all starts bleeding together. I left out one really important detail about all ancient covenants. So you have the oath. I promise, you promise. You have the sacrifice. Better not mess up or that's going to happen to you. And then the last step is each person, each party would receive a copy of the oath, the terms. So that at regular intervals, you could pull that out again and be reminded of what you promised, what the covenant entails. The best explanation that I have found for why Moses comes down from Mount Sinai with two stone tablets, it's not because they ran out of room and had to go to page two. Do you get it? And this is really obvious to anyone familiar with ancient covenants. The point is there's a copy for both partners, both parties, one for the Israelites and one for God. But in this case, since one of the partners in your covenant is God, they're like, well, we'll, we'll hold your copy. We'll keep it for you. <laughs> so they put it in the Ark of the Covenant in the temple to be uh, guarded. God gives stipulations for how often the covenant was to be read aloud so the people would remember God and what he's done. Notice Jesus in forging this new covenant with us does not give us something to read. No, he gives us the bread and the cup and he says, do this to remember me. He says, you know what? Instead of stone tablets to be stored away in some basement somewhere and dusted off every few years and read, instead of that, I am writing this new covenant on your hearts. And this meal becomes an abbreviated representation. It actually becomes a reenactment of the ratification of the new covenant. Remember when God made the covenant with Abraham? I said Abraham was discouraged. He was wondering if he could really trust God to come through for him or not. That God didn't need the whole covenant ceremony, the oath, the sacrifice. All of that was for Abraham's benefit to reassure him. For the rest of his life, Abraham would look back and remember the time when the living God met him in a personal way. In the same way, communion is God's gift to us. It's for our benefit. Only this covenant reenactment is meant to be done over and over. It's meant to be an act that sustains us throughout our whole lifetimes. When we have doubts, when we need reassurance, I mean, we all have times like this. We wonder, God, are you really there? Do you care about any of this? When we're tempted to beat ourselves up because of our failures, our shame, or we're overwhelmed with fear and anxiety about our future, the risen Jesus invites us to his table. He says, can't you see what I've done? You're my brothers. You're my sisters. You are like part of my New family, all I have is yours. He says to us, you have a brand new identity. You actually have a new home in me. Your future, it's all taken care of 
He thought of everything. Jesus says, as you eat this bread, which represents my broken body, as you drink the cup, which represents my shed blood, the blood of the new covenant, the new arrangement, remember whose you are. Remember to whom you belong. I want to invite our communion servers to please come forward and cliff. Um, in just a moment, I'm going to pray, and we'll be invited to participate in communion. I hope that this has maybe allowed you or enabled you to think about what it is we're doing when we take this bread and we dip it in this cup and we participate. He thought of everything so that you and I could be sons and daughters, brothers and sisters. Uh, let me pray. God, it is amazing. Um, just a reminder of, of how much you got involved in like the nitty-gritty details of, of human history. That going way, way back, you were determined to get through to us. Whatever it took. Even if that meant you yourself walk through the bloody path. And Jesus, we see that at a whole new level with what you've done for us. That you call us your brothers and sisters, your sons, your daughters. God, like the Israelites, we confess that we have not always done a great job of covenant faithfulness. We have not always held up our end of the deal. Um, we've sinned. We've forgotten about you. But you have been faithful. Your said, your loving kindness, your faithfulness to us um, over and over. Jesus, thank you that in our disobedience, you were willing to sacrifice yourself. And that should have been us. That you paid that penalty on our behalf and you didn't have to. What incredible, incredible, that's, that's mercy and grace. So Jesus, help us come to this table today with new eyes. Help us to see the lengths that you have gone to to love us, to redeem us, to reassure us that every time we take this bread, every time we drink this cup, we remember these things. And you're with us, even now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.